Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. Bruce, it is really exciting to talk with you today. I'm, I know that this is not our usual hour for podcasting, but we are bumping this because of a little bit of your travel schedule. And I'm really excited to dig in today to some listener questions that we've received over the last, I would say, couple of months. Um, this is from YouTube, from Facebook, from direct emails to us. Sometimes for some sort of certain circumstances, we're going to remove information that uh, might be personal or um, some specific details of the questions. But I love answering listener questions. First of all, if if you're asking a question, that means that you are seeking for information that's going to help you get the clarity to make decisions. And you're doing that in the right way. You're asking and you're seeking for knowledge. You're seeking for wisdom. The other thing is that if you're asking, chances are there's somebody else who has that same thought or the same um, desire to understand something that you do that would benefit someone else. And so we love being able to hear your questions and your thoughts from the community, from our tribe. And so we just wanted to have an episode dedicated to that. And Bruce, before I kick us off, I want to say something really exciting. We just, as of today, I was watching the numbers. We just crossed over on YouTube, which is where most of our listeners are centered at. I mean, we have a lot on the podcast as well and some on Facebook, but mostly on YouTube, we just crossed over 25,000 subscribers. So if you're joining us today and you're hearing this, thank you for being one of those subscribers. Thank you for being part of this community of people who are independent thinkers and really desiring and deciding to take financial control of your future. And go ahead and connect with us as we go through this conversation today. Maybe your questions that you've asked us are going to pop up. Maybe you have more that you'd like to drop into the chat while we're live. And we also have a unique opportunity for you. So stay tuned all the way till the end to hear about that opportunity. So Bruce, before we dive into any specific question, I'd love just to hear your perspective in life as we are starting out this episode. Yeah, well, um, this is these are my favorite type of episodes I actually do. And I talked to James Nethery, our, our uh, fellow IBC uh, colleague, and, and it's a it's one of his favorites to do too, because what you're doing is you're actually getting to the uh, root of the questions that people really want to know about. And so I love answering these questions. It's funny, Rachel, some of the questions come up. I heard Bruce say, or I heard Rachel say, yeah. and and I'm always amazed because, you know, I, I'm not above this. Sometimes I make mistakes when I'm talking and you correct me. And sometimes I correct you because I don't know if our listeners realize this is, you know, we don't, we don't script these. We are actually realize it, Bruce, we would be way more, (laughs) we'd be more (laughs) articulate if we had scripted this fully. Right. Well, and we have guide we have guidelines that we follow, but, um, but, but I I just want to tell you that um, the listener and thank you and tell you, Rachel, that more and more people that are reaching out to us and our advisors, they're, they're actually appreciating the genuineness of just the educational uh, component. We are not ever going to be TikTok and Instagram, you know, uh, uh, stars. <laughs> and 
it's one of those things that does bother me occasionally when I do, because I, I go on and all this social media because I'm trying to hold Nelson Nash's legacy uh, to the finest standards that we can possibly have. And a lot of times these, these uh, TikTok and Instagram stars are, are all they're doing is sensationalizing things. But the good news is the people that we really want to deal, deal with actually realize that. Mm-hmm. And so they appreciate, they appreciate just this, you know, uh, factual educational information and then we can go from there. Now there's things to improve upon. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, but yeah, let's get into these today. And uh, like I said, it's, it's one of my favorite episode types to do. Absolutely. So we have a couple of people jumping in on Facebook. Hello, dear friends. I don't see who this is. Um, maybe I could see in a different, um, a different window here, but they say, I believe it's going to be a great congratulations, 25,000 subscribers. So um, all right, so we're going to dive in today to some of these questions. This first one is on how to weather the current economy. So they asked, how do I weather the current economy to raise capital in order to create passive or semi-passive incomes? So they're thinking about how do I weather this current economic climate to create passive income? And they said, within a year, is this really possible? So there's a lot wrapped up into that question, right? I mean, we've got yeah. we've got the idea of how do I deal with today's economy? How do I create passive income? And how do I do it fast? I mean, I really am seeing kind of three parts of this question. Bruce, go ahead and um, jump in with your thoughts and then I'll add mine. Okay, so first of all, this is what the Austrian economists um, have been preaching years and years, stop manipulating the interest rates or the business cycle because when you do this you have these highs and lows bob murphy dr bob murphy that we've had on talks about this all the time first of all i like to say it's about mindset it's it's not about uh having one plan it's about you actually having the talents the time and the capacity to actually overcome any kind of downside cycle in our economy now I do believe that it's going to happen, and this is not advice, or I'm no guru on this, uh, although our analysts do say that the recession probably will happen in the third or fourth quarter, actually next year. And it depends on, as you, if you haven't noticed, there's even now different definitions of what a recession is. It used to be two consecutive quarters of, of negative GDP, and now all of a sudden that definition has changed. So how do you weather it? Well, I would say you continue to increase your capacity and knowledge along the way. Many people did this during COVID, and it sparked a revolution of new services and new ways of doing business. And it was a it was a great thing, and it will continue to be a great thing. Where do you get capital in less than a year? That's going to be difficult, difficult because the Fed's tightening of capital is the whole reason why we are going to go into a recession. So, and, and I, I understand where this is coming from. This is from the, I buy real estate, no money down, so can you. Um, what's, what's interesting is probably that's not as true now as it will be in a recessionary period. Why? Because in a recessionary period, I just saw my first one yesterday. I'm always looking for a real estate. I just saw my uh, first one yesterday where there was a lease to own. You would have never seen lease to own for the last 10 or 12 years as interest rates were 
very low. So now people realize that interest rates are over six and are pushing towards seven. So people probably will not will not uh, take on that larger uh, payment. So they think, well, and also they they won't have as much money down. A lot of people don't have as much money to put down. So these lease to own are going to come back into the to the fold, and that would be a way to do that. Now that's that's a limited situation. Um, I would say just stay with your in your networking. Um, go to different networking event, real estate networking events, chamber of commerce events. Uh, talk to your friends, family. Just let people know. And I'll close with this, Rachel. Um, Nelson said this on more than one occasion over the approximately 12 years I knew him. Opportunity finds money. Mm-hmm. So think, think long-term and do not feel like you have to deploy capital. One of the reasons that we are going into a recessionary period is because we have been deploying cheap capital quickly. And many people might say, well, what, what, what do you mean? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense if you stop and think about it. If you don't care how much something costs, the cost of that particular uh, item goes up. And when you're sitting on a lot of capital, like these venture capitalists are, or these SPACs are, or these real estate investment trusts are, they have to actually deploy that capital and buy things that they are now regretting they bought because they didn't adhere to their standards. So it's the same thing in a personal investment. Don't just say, oh, I have 120000 in my life insurance policy cash value. I need to get that out. No, you need to get it out when it's the appropriate time to get it out. I love that you just shared so much about what's going on in the economy and interest rates and where the recession is headed and what's causing it. And I would just say with this whole idea of how do you weather the turbulence right now of rising interest rates, of recession environment, um, looking at inflation, looking at all of the factors that we're in right now, looking at the volatility in the stock market. I mean, I would just say, come back to principles. The number one principle is to make sure that you have money in a position that you can access and you can control. And if you're doing that, you're in a position where you're spending less than you make, you're making sure that you have savings, it's true savings, you're holding that in a place that has the best safety, liquidity and growth possible. And you're in a position, again, exactly as Bruce said, you're not saying I have to deploy this right now, you're waiting until the right time frame. So if if inflation is happening and you're then having a higher cost of living and higher expenses, then you need to factor in how am I going to maintain my cash flow, my income greater than expenses so I can keep that habit of savings. And that may mean thinking entrepreneurially and thinking a little bit outside the box to realize how can you scale what you're doing? How can you add in new entrepreneurial endeavors to increase your income? It's a wonderful way to look at times to increase your income with the skill set and the knowledge that you have. Yeah, so, real quickly, Ken, Ken, yes. Kenny on uh, on YouTube said something about you mean, you mean depression. No, I, don't, I know I don't really mean depression. Um, and yes, that's what I was saying. Uh, by some definitions of recession, you could say we're in a recession right now. But there, really, when you think about it, who cares what it's called? You know, because some people actually 
do very, very well in the recession. Mm -hmm. Some companies do very, very, very well in the recession and a depression. Alcohol. There's still needs, right? There's still yeah. people buying goods. That's There's still like, right. um, things that need to be supplied in the economy. And if you can find a way to get in the midst of that path, yes. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say alcohol and, uh, and it, interestingly enough, beauty products do really well during recessional because I think mm -hmm. women want to want to look well, good, and feel good when things around them are not feeling good. It, it's it's kind of an interesting um, sociological phenomenon. But yeah, people are still making money in a recession, and even in a depression, you just have to figure out what your talent is to be able to do that. Fabulous. Okay, so next question. This is from. Ida, I'm not going to read the whole question, but this was about the idea of keeping track of borrowed funds. So the mm -hmm. nature of the question is they're in a position of trying to understand infinite banking. They want to know specifically, how do you keep track of, I've got a policy loan, I'm using that policy loan. Maybe I have multiple policies. I've taken multiple loans from multiple policies. I'm using those loans, some in business, some in my personal life. I've got a lot going on and how do I manage that in a way that I don't lose track of how much I have out in loans, what, how I'm repaying those loans and what I'm using it for. And so let's just go ahead and um, Bruce, I would love to hear your thoughts on this again first, and then I'll go ahead and share my thoughts here. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is don't major in the minor things. So I would not get too caught up and I know you have to pay attention because Heck, I, ch I check all my investments every day. I, ch I check all my bank accounts every day from a high level just to make sure there's no fraud going on or so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, uh, to if you're trying to figure out, you know, the interest that you're paying here versus what you're making over here, that should have been done at the very beginning in a macro setting. And it's, it's not going to change on a micro setting. Okay. Because the, the life insurance loan terms are not going to change. So you don't have to worry about that. Now, I believe she used the word segregated account accounts. Yes, and I agree did. with it. I agree with this a hundred percent. So and I do this personally, but I also know a client of ours that does it way over the top. They have 20 Bank of America accounts that they move money in and out as far as different policy loans and um, different uh, cash flow and then borrowing against and so on and so forth. I would suggest setting up one to start and have the money that you're going to borrow against that loan go into that investment savings or checking account, then pay for the investment out of that savings and checking account, then have the cash flow of that go back into savings and checking account, and then have the ACH or the, or the direct movement of money from your personal savings investment account back to the, back to the uh, insurance company. And if it, if it really bothers you, you can, you, can keep your, you can keep your different investments separate. If you're real estate investments, you, maybe you do it all in one particular segregated account. If you have some other kind of cash flowing, you do it in an, another one. And the, the other thing that I know people are doing is they're saying, well, I want to actually put as much money in here and then actually take my living expenses out. 
I haven't seen that work really well if you're going to do it on a monthly basis. If you're going to do it on a, if you're going to do it at all, and this was never set up to run your daily expenses, like your your gasoline, your your Starbucks, uh, whatever your whatever else you do on a daily basis. This was for large ticket items. But if you're trying to do this, then I what I would do is fund your policy, borrow against on a quarterly or probably more more likely a semi-annual basis, put into the segregated account, and then live out of that uh, segregated account. Um, so those yeah. are my thoughts on segregated accounts. And I, I do like them. I do it personally for for my mm-hmm. um, the way I do my investments. Actually, so just a quick note on that. We use a segregated account as well, my husband Lucas and I. So we put money for the premium of the life insurance into a separate, what we call opportunity fund. And so that's something that's going in every month. And then we pay our annual premiums. And so we have one account for premium funds. So then all of the money that goes through your bank account can be connected over to mint.com, which is where we are able, we use personally that to track all of our income and our outflows. So all of the monthly spending, I was going to say, if you're going to do loans, you do want to think about them in big chunks. You don't want 5,000 little loans. Just think about it in a, a bigger loan situation. So if you need a big chunk chunk of capital, use that. But don't take two loans every day. I mean, that's just that would get really hectic. But you can track everything through mint.com or through your online banking if you're doing it out of your bank account. Um, I also think big picture. And what I like to do is always be thinking, where are the dollars going to come from that are going to repay these loans? Remember, you don't have to repay your loans on a schedule. They will have the interest that's accruing every month. And that is something that will ultimately need to be paid, but you do not have to pay it on a monthly basis. So paying your policy loans back. So you could, for instance, have a $20,000 loan. Maybe you paid back 5,000 of it. Then you took another $50,000 loan. And so you might have this kind of growing and shrinking loan balance that might consist of multiple loans that haven't necessarily all been taken out, repaid, taken out, fully repaid, taken out, fully repaid. It may not be that clean, but that's okay. As long as you have a plan with some kind of capital that you're diverting and setting aside to be able to repay loans. This is one thing I think is really important to think about in advance of setting up a policy that you always want to have additional capital that you will be able to repay loans with. You don't want to think about here's the exact dollar amount that I'm saving. All of it goes into a policy premium. And then I have no wiggle room to pay back loans when I have that need arise. I would say a plan to pay back. It doesn't have to be from initial cash flow. It may be an, an investment, you, a cash flowing investment that you make that might take six months to start, or it may also be one that's an appreciation play so that you may not, uh, if it's real estate, you're going to do like a fix and flip situation, but you know you're going to be able to pay it back in a year to six to 18 months because you're going to sell the flip, but you should have a plan uh, 100%. All right, let's move on to the next question. So this is about single premium life insurance premiums. So or single premium life insurance. So this is a person who um, checked out our video that we did on alternative financing for churches or nonprofits or 501c3s. And they said, I was actually hoping you were going to cover the MEC guidelines on single premium life insurance premiums for donors. 
Um, Bruce, I know we had talked with this person outside of the podcast, but just wanted to bring this idea up just specifically about the benefits and pitfalls that churches and nonprofits could consider when doing IBC for their cash flow management. So um, yeah. can you comment just on MEC guidelines, the idea of wanting to put in one lump sum, why we don't usually advise yeah. for that and, and how it might possibly be used? Yes. Um, so let's think about Nelson's principle of don't be afraid to capitalize and think long term. Okay, so th this applies here. First of all, I'm gonna. I've been doing this in this industry for since the '80s, and I still don't know the exact mech guidelines how to calculate them. And so I'm really always fascinated when somebody wants us to go over the mech guidelines. And to be honest with you, which I always try to be honest with you, the <laughs> The insurance companies actually interpret the MEC guidelines differently. So what does that mean? You can, you can tell one, one company you're going to put $50,000 a year for 10 years, and they're going to come up with a MEC guideline, and you're going to tell another company to do the exact same thing, and they're going to come up with a different MEC guideline. Now, they won't be grossly different. But there's a lot of things that they take in consideration. Their projection of growth is obviously one, because the more it grows, the more uh, death benefit it produces, thus more cash value you can go into. So that is one thing to consider. Let me let me um, just back up one second here, so that people understand what a single premium is. So a single premium, this person is asking asking about is what if i just take a single premium which is a uh, just all it is is a huge pua a paid up additions okay so you're putting it in one time you never have to make another payment towards that part of the contract so i say this to clients all the time i have a hundred thousand dollars you go to the insurance company it's a single premium don't make it harder than what what it sounds like so you're saying i just want to make one single premium here and you give it to them, the actuaries figure out their little magic according to your health, your habits, your gender, your age. And they say, you never have to put another dime into this and it won't mech and you get this much death benefit. So that's a single premium. Then you can actually then do a normal contract where you have a base contract and you can have a PUA contract on, on top of that. So meaning you've the paid in a big chunk and then you're going to have something not as large as the big chunk that's going to continue going in on an annual basis. Correct. Now, this is this is once again out there where a lot of people say you should do this for real estate investing. Now, the problem is, is that single premium is the same as a paid up additions. So, because a, a paid up addition is a single premium paid up addition. So you on that portion of the policy contract, you never have to make another payment. You've bought additional life insurance for that one single premium. The problem with doing this is if you immediately borrow against and you have that single premium and the paid up additions, you have two very large paid up additions and that paid up addition goes out and you're going to be charged interest for that. If you do not have a sound 
way to pay that back and you delay paying it back, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for the dividends and interest in the contract to make enough to actually offset the borrowing cost. And I'm, I, I know there's going to be some people screaming at the, the podcast now and say, well, that's not what so-and-so told me. They say I make the same dividend rate on the PUA as I do on the, um, the, pay, the base premium. That is true, but they're, they're, they're leaving out something that is the calculation in the dividend that is awarded to your contract, and that is the amount of death benefit. So that's part of the calculation. Once again, it's proprietary. We can't tell you exactly how it works in it, but you can look at a contract. Um, you can look at an annual statement and see how much more the dividend, they break it out. They break it out the base dividend and the PUA dividend. How much more? It's usually nine or 10 times more of the dividend goes towards the base than goes towards the PUA, which once again, that a single PUA is the same thing. Single premium is the same thing as a PUA. So if you do not have the discipline or the wherewithal to make sure you start paying that back, that contract can get offset and, and tilted. So what I tell people is, listen, why don't we just not do that at big that big PUA, single premium? Let's just do the regular contract. And then we can actually you go take that single premium, go buy your real estate with it. Don't run it through the contract, which is heresy sometimes, you know, because people are like, well, you're not getting the compounding effect. Well, you're not going to get the compounding effect if you don't pay back the loan. So go buy it and now use the cash flow that you think you're going to get from that particular asset and then use it to pay your premium in your contract. So now you can actually mm -hmm. raise up the premium you thought you were going to use and you can actually make that cash flow, make it a larger premium. That's thinking long-term. Mm -hmm. A single premium, and you might do a combination. I'm not saying, I think I think our listeners realize that Rachel and I are never saying that there's one way of doing things. Yes, absolutely you might, not. So you may, you may think, oh, I was going to put 500000 in a single premium. Well, now maybe you go do 400000 in your real estate, and you only do 100000 in your single premium. So these are the things that you really need to sit down with somebody and and figure out your cash flow and the likelihood of that cash flow remaining constant. Unfortunately, Rachel, many entrepreneurs that we deal with, business owners, overestimate their cash flows and underestimate, and we're going to talk about this on a couple more questions, underestimate what can go wrong in their business or frankly in the economy at any time. So you have to have some bulletproof strategies to handle that. Mm, absolutely. Uh, there's so much that we could say here. Bruce, I love how you unpack that. I'm just going to summarize for somebody who might just want the one sentence version. And I'm sure that this is not going to be as detailed, but basically the challenge with having a single premium policy or having that big lump sum is that if you do that and then take a maximum loan, your cost, which is the interest accumulating on the loan may not be covered by the dividends and interest growth on the base contract because the growth 
on the base is less than the growth on the paid up addition death benefit. And so we do want to think big picture. It does not always have to be the one way of life insurance first and then running all of your investments through the life insurance. Sometimes there is a very valid reason to invest first. And as you said, Bruce, then use the income off those investments to fund a longer term funding strategy. Yeah. Right. And, and before, we go, before we go to the next one, just let me summarize this a little bit. We may have been actually even guilty of giving that impression. And Nelson in his book talks about that your premium should equal income. But once again, I'm going to reiterate that that only happens way down the road after you understand how your cash flow works, how you understand how the contract works. You can't, you can't eat the elephant all in one sitting. You have to work up to this particular systematic way of having contracts or running your financial life. Bruce, that was so good. I want to just pinpoint that for a minute. I wanted to bring it up again at the end, but for anybody who might be sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, I'm so far behind. I wish I learned this earlier. I wish I could jump 10 steps ahead and just get to the end goal now and be doing things perfectly, which I have to say, I am 100% guilty of being that human. I always want, I don't want to process. I want the finished product. I don't want to go through the journey. I just want the perfection now. And, and it can be really difficult for that person, including myself, to walk through a journey of saying, well, I start with a small policy because that's what I need to get started. And it might be a couple of years before I add another policy and increase my cash flow that goes into the premium. So if you're starting small, please don't shame on yourself. Just take the step with where you are right now. You don't have to get all the way to the end goal right away. Okay. So inflation protection, this is kind of the, the question it's related to inflation protection. So the question is, oh, the previous one was from JJ. Uh, I'll try to credit the asker of the question from our tribe here, if at all possible. So this is from Rolando. He said, by default, are cash flow banking policies inflation proof or inflation resistant? Question part A, part B, especially after they turn into perpetual income streams. Um, we could say that's part B and C, income streams that are perpetual. That's two ideas right there. And then the next part, if not, can they be adjusted to be that way. Bruce, I'm just going to comment a couple of things on the front of this and then I'll let you take it from there. So our cash flow banking policy is inflation proof or inflation resistant. It depends on exactly what you mean by inflation proof or inflation resistant. But if you would say the cost of goods and services that I'm spending in my everyday life are going up, we look at the price of gas, we look at the price of groceries. I mean, I don't even know if it's doubled almost in the last year. There's just so much added expense in our everyday life. So you look at Inflation is rising, meaning expenses are higher for everyone. What I want to do is have the best growth rate if I'm trying to compensate for inflation. However, if I just look at trying to take the highest risk possible and diving into Bitcoin or crypto or um, some investment strategy that I think is going to get the highest rate of return, I have the potential for loss or not going forward. And so really, I want to have as much safety in my financial life as possible. And we always talk about you want safety, you want liquidity or access, and you want growth. You can't always get all three of those in any one product. But when you're looking at a place that's safe and liquid, meaning it's not going to drop in value and I can access it, where is the place that gets the greatest growth rate that allows me that safety 
and that access. That's where I see life insurance being the highest growth rate when I factor in what the cash value looks like compared to the premium that I've put in. Is it inflation proof? Not necessarily, but it's going to help me more than if I put my dollars into bank savings or under the mattress. Is it more inflation proof than putting my money completely at risk in investments that have the potential for loss? Depends on your definition. That's where I would start with that question. Bruce, I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah, I think inflation resistant is a good way of saying it. You know, what's interesting, historically, some of the some of the companies that we work with that are paying anywhere between a five and a six percent dividend have paid as high as eight and nine percent dividends in the past. And why is the dividend changed? Is because it's an interest rate driven product. 75% of the investments an insurance company make are in interest rate driven products. So it just makes sense. As the interest rates go up, they can get more yield. That's a fancy way of saying more income off that particular interest rate driven, mostly bonds, but they they do uh, invest in real estate, which is an interest rate driven product also. So it just makes sense. Now, what I want people to understand is if you go from 5% dividend to an 8% dividend, that's not a 3% increase. That is a 60% increase. Okay, so your cash value will not go up by 3%. Now, all these are potential. I'm saying this potentially because mm-hmm. I don't know your individual situation. But but we have historicals that actually show cash value in the 80s when interest rates were going down, but bond values were going up that actually show that over a 12-year period, that the dividends that were added to the cash value, the cash value increased by 30% more than was illustrated. Mm, wow. well, well, guess what? 30% more on your cash value than was originally illustrated is a good thing. And once the dividends and interest are added to the cash value, they're guaranteed. So it's non-volatile. So you can get a 30% increase in the stock market one year and then get a 25% decrease the next year. So you have an overall 5%, but you've only averaged 2.5%. So these are the things you have to consider about being what I would call inflation resistant. Bruce, there's a whole other part of this question, and I'll just speak to this real quickly here. Um, so Rolando asked as well, especially after they turn into perpetual income streams. And so what he's speaking to is this idea that, again, can be oversold in the infinite banking community that you fund a policy for the purpose of retirement income. And then at a certain age, you begin taking off a loan or even withdrawal in those years, every single year as a source of income. And we, I would just caution anyone from looking at life insurance as a primary income source. It is a fantastic last resort for income because it's something you should hold as long as possible. If you think about compound growth, the the greatest benefit of compound growth is at the end. So if you start doing something before the compound growth has risen to its maximum peak, you're, you're limiting the potential. So if you are looking at life insurance to say, how do I start taking income as soon as possible from this, as long as possible, you're going to have limitations. 
But if you think of it as an income buffer or a volatility buffer for income when your investments are down and you may not want to take income out of your investment fund at that time, or if you think of it as, well, after I use up my investments, now I can tap into the life insurance as an income stream. You have a lot more capability for what life insurance is going to be able to offer to you than if you think of it as a first resort for income. Um, Bruce, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to that idea. No, that's, that, that, that's great. And, um, you know, just look up the podcast on Dr. Wade Fowl. He'll talk about this. I think where this is coming from, Rachel, is the IUL community is touting this as a tax-free income source for you in retirement. And it, and it can be, but once again, you have to cost yourself that it shouldn't be the only one, especially now a lot of those IUL were featuring premium financing. And we haven't even talked about this, but actually where you're borrowing money to actually make your, your premiums, which in some case can make a, can make sense, but most cases it doesn't make any sense. And we're actually going to talk about this, I think, yet today because somebody asked about, well, we'll get there. Uh, what's the next one? All right. Okay. So here's the next question. This is about maximizing pension plans. I'm going to summarize this question. It was a fantastic question, um, but I don't want to share personal information. And I also want to um, just condense this. This was from a guy named Michael. Um, so he mentions that he spent 21 years putting money into a defined benefit pension plan. That defined benefit word is going to be key in a second. Um, and then he was talking about what his cash balance in the pension earns just 1% while he's waiting to use this, this capital. Um, then there's the options for how you can take money out of the pension plan. There are fixed monthly payment, a lower fixed monthly payment with a lump sum up front or a lump sum, which is cash out altogether and no monthly payment. So this is three options for accessing the cash that's in his pension. Then he's also saying, well, there's another option and it's to do with survivor benefit, which is when he dies, does this pension continue to pay to his wife or not? So he can have an option for if he dies, it continues to pay to his wife every month at 50% or 100%. But then if she passes away as well, so he's gone and she's gone, there's nothing that goes to the children. So there's a lot of options for how to receive the cash from this pension. The question came in when he realized, hey, look, I've recently learned about infinite banking and cash flow banking, and or yeah, he calls it cash balance whole life and infinity banking, but infinite banking as we talk about. And he's saying, I would have taken a defined contribution, not defined benefit, defined contribution, which is a set dollar amount that I'm putting in. If he had done that at the same time period, 21 years ago, he's thinking, well, hey, I could have funded the same cash into infinite banking instead. And then what would be the difference? How would that have impacted me differently? Um, he's thinking about how could, he's, he's saying, I, I want to consider this, but also it's a little challenging and, and um, you know, unnerving to think about what you could have done if you knew better in the past. So we never want to shame on anyone or, or have you bring shame on yourself for decisions you made in the past. You can only make decisions going forward today. But he's also saying, you know, how do I decide what to do 
with how to take this income in the best way possible. So Bruce, you've done a ton of work with pensions. I know they're not as um, necessarily relevant with not as many people using them today, but can you just speak to pensions and how to conceptualize this in terms of the best decisions possible? Yeah, what's interesting, Rachel, is if, if our listeners think that they don't have a lot of knowledge about how money works, people that get pensions really don't because they don't have to. Because <laughs> they, they, they know when they retire, there's just going to be an income stream coming in. It's an annuity. It's funny. People have fought to keep pensions in because they like that income stream. And then there's a massive movement against, oh, annuities are terrible. Be, uh, because they have such a high fees and all these other misconceptions, but yet annuities are terrible, but defined benefit programs like pensions are great. So when you're trying to decide this, you have to take in many, many things in consideration. And a lot of them are wild guesses. Unfortunately, they are because you're trying to figure out who's going to die first if you're in a spousal situation. You're trying to figure out, can I get a rate of return outside of it that is better or comparable so that I can have more control of that money? And then the final thing I'd like to say is if you have any questions and you both have pensions, there's definitely one thing I can say 100% is if you're receiving a pension, what they call single life, and your spouse gets nothing, and then your spouse also has the same choice. So those, your your spouse gets single life, and your and your other spouse gets not your other spouse, <laughs> the, the other person, the, spouse, right? the other person gets nothing. Most couples do not want that happen. So the so the male spouse says, "Well, I'm going to lower mine. I'm going to leave you a benefit if I die first. And males usually say that because we die before women actuarially. But then the female says, now, wait a minute, if you're going to do that for me, I want to do it for you. So they'll lower theirs. Now, this is the only thing I can say definitively. If both spouses lower their pension to protect the other one, I don't know who's going to die first, but I know you both can't die first. So that means that one of you are actually paying for a benefit that will never pay out. Mm -hmm. So then you have to say to yourself, at least one of you ought to consider taking out a well-designed whole life, keeping the pension at single life level, and then instead of your spouse getting the payout on a monthly basis from the pension, they will get a tax-free death benefit that they can use in lieu of the monthly benefit. That's the only thing I can say definitively. Now, how much you do it, how you structure it, then that we have to look at it on an individual basis. I love that you shared that because I think often when somebody's asking a question, and not all of these were designed to be answered in a public format, but I think sometimes it's really helpful for somebody to hear these questions and hear the thought process. But we can't answer everything in a public format because just so much depends on your specific situation and your specific options available to you. It is very interesting if you are currently starting to make decisions, maybe you're at the beginning of that 21-year timeline and you're saying, I have an option to have a defined benefit pension plan that I put capital into every year or every month, or I have the ability to do something else with that cash and maybe put it into a life insurance policy. What's going what's to work out better for me? 
The cool thing is if you did put money into life insurance, you know that for sure at some point you will pass away. And at some point that benefit will pay out to your spouse. And if it, if your spouse has already passed, that will pay out to your heirs, whoever you've designated, whether that be your children or a trust. So you have the ability for the payout to be given for sure to someone to benefit someone. It could even be a charity. It may not even be a direct descendant for you, but you have the ability to have as much capital to be used however you wish that could benefit whom, whomever you decide. All right, Bruce, we are covering a lot and we have lots to go. So this is a very quick and simple question. This is about the time from beginning a policy to taking out a policy loan. So the question is from Beverly, how long does it take before I can borrow from myself? I'm gonna point out one thing, two things before we get started in this question. Nobody borrows from themselves. So this is a misconception. And again, it could just be semantics, but words are very important. Bruce, you say this all the time, and I think I'm borrowing your language. Words matter. So you're not borrowing from yourself. This is a misunderstanding with with infinite banking and the life insurance community. When you pay premiums, you pay them to the life insurance company. They give you a life insurance policy, which grows cash value. That cash value belongs to you. Your contractual right is not to borrow from your policy. No, it is to borrow from the life insurance company against your policy. So nobody is borrowing from themselves. They're borrowing from the life insurance company, paying interest for the use of that capital to the life insurance company, contractually guaranteed or contractually made possible to you because you own cash value inside the life insurance policy. So just let's clear that air for a second. You're borrowing from the life insurance company. Then how long does it take, Bruce? I mean, generally- it, it depends. It depends on the insurance company, but it's anywhere between two weeks to thirty days. I, I don't know of any of them that are past thirty days. My last thing to say about that is, if if you have to get the money back in thirty days, then maybe you're not thinking long term, and then maybe you should have a different strategy. Maybe use the cash to buy the cash flowing investment, have the cash flow from the investment pay premium to the policy, maybe that makes more sense for you. Perfect. All right. This question is, um, I don't know which podcast this was on, but this is from Rob. He says, I heard Bruce say today on the podcast that someone is losing control of their money by paying off their mortgage without first building up the cash value to equal what you owe on the mortgage. Why do you lose control? I have a policy that I'd like to start paying on my mortgage extra. So I'd like to use this policy cash value to start paying extra to my mortgage and would like to know what's the error in doing that. So A, Rob, thank you for listening to the, to the show. B, thank you for pointing out something that didn't make sense and really trying to think this through and work this through in your mind. Um, I would love yes. to answer this, but I'm going to let you, Bruce, because it was directed to you. So you go ahead. So Rob, uh, yeah, thanks for maybe, I don't think I made an error, but maybe I wasn't clear enough. What happens here is, and and actually, I'm passionate about this because I had clients in 2008 mortgage crisis that were actually hurt really, really badly by prepaying their loan down. When one case completely and another case, they paid it down religiously to where it wasn't, the mortgage wasn't paid off, but it was down really low. And then both spouses lost their job and they could not access the cash that they had in their home. In one case, yes, they didn't have a 
mortgage payment. In the other case was even worse. They still had the same mortgage payment and they didn't have access to cash. Because all you have to do is go to the bank when you both lose your job and say, I'd like to make a loan, a home equity line of credit, or do a cash out refinancing. And the first question they're going to ask you is, where do you work? Because they want to know how you're going to pay this loan back. And they're not even going to get to the application process because in their minds, you have to have cash flow to pay the loan back. Mm -hmm. So what you do is to stay in control is, yes, you're going to pay interest to the to the mortgage company or the bank, but you are going to earn interest and dividends. So one's going down, the mortgage going down, the cash value is going up. As soon as they meet, you can then take a loan against your cash value. You're in control of those years. All those years, you can pay it off. You have no mortgage. Now you take your mortgage payment, you pay it back to the loan at the insurance company. Now, guess what? If you lose your job, the, the insurance company does not require you to continue to make that loan payment. You can take a hiatus. You can lower the loan payment. You're in total control in that case. So Rob, thanks for pointing it out. I probably didn't make that clear enough. I love the question though, because I think that this um, taps at a huge emotion that so many people have. And that's that the American dream is to be a homeowner and I want to pay off my mortgage as fast as possible. There's just a huge um, mindset in our country. There's a, a, a giant number of people that I know ascribe to this idea that they want to be debt free and have that as quick as possible. And the thought is, well, debt means a burden. It means bondage and slavery to the lender in a way that, well, they're in control. So I want to have all freedom. I want to have no payments, no debt obligation, and I want to be completely free and debt free. The problem that I see though, is that that ends up putting people in a position that they do lack control because if the primary goal is just to be free of debt, you're putting all the extra dollars into reducing that debt, thinking, well, as soon as I get debt free, now I'm free. But the problem is if you have need for capital or desire for capital, maybe it's just a good investment that you want to access money and use it for something, you don't have as much access to the capital that's in the four walls of the house in home equity as you do in another place where you can tap into it and access it. So I always like to think, where do I have the most control? That's really where I want to be storing the majority of my cash. And home equity is not the best place for the maximum control. All right. We are going to see if we can squeeze in one or maybe two more here. So this is the next question. Um, oh, I love this question. Do you help individuals that already have infinite banking policies? This has actually come up many times and I'll just say, yes, we do. The reason is that there are so many questions that can arise. How do I use my policy? Am I ready for another policy? How do I pay off this policy loan? Is this properly structured? Should I, um, exchange this, do a 1035 exchange into a different policy? Uh, maybe I have term insurance. I want to convert that to hold, but I'm not with a company that it has the convertibility option. There are, well, I guess that person wouldn't have infinite banking yet. They would have a life insurance policy. So yes, if you currently have questions about infinite banking, we can help you. Bruce, I know you probably have something you'd like to add to that. So I'm going to pass the mic to you. Yeah. And um, one of the things that we try to hang our hat on here is that we have a succession plan at the Money Advantage, which includes 
our wealth firm, E3 Wealth in St. Louis and, and other places across the United States. And so customer service is very important to us. And it doesn't, it doesn't do you any good to have an infinite banking type product and then not understand how to use it. It's like having a trust, which we think everybody should have a trust or most everybody should have a trust and then not putting assets in the trust. It does you no good. So if you have an infinite banking uh, type contract and you don't know how to use it, we'd be glad to sit down and talk to you about that. And then we, we would talk about other aspects of your life and, and how to maximize that situation. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. So Bruce, I'm watching the time. Let me ask you this. How much more time do you have that you want to go? Do you want to do, do you need to be done in four minutes? If so, I can wrap us. If not, we can take a few more questions. No, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. All right. This is going to be a question about cash value and death benefit. I'm going to leave a little bit of information out on this question. This is from Jim. Um, And so he says, I'm a subscriber to your YouTube videos and you talk much about IBC and dividend paying life insurance products. I have a specially engineered dividend paying whole life product from, he names a company I'm not going to share here, that has a PUA rider on it. My agent, who's left nameless here, is telling me that the death benefit and the cash value are both paid out at death. This is the key of the question. I don't think it works that way. Is there such thing? What would it be called? Or perhaps the agent means the cash value of the PUA side along with the death benefit are paid out. I appreciate any thoughts you may have. Um, let's just clear the air on this. Unfortunately, some people do not communicate in a way that, (laughs) let me just, let me just say that they don't share the truth about something, or maybe they don't fully understand, or they communicate in a way that's confusing and leads to confusion. So Bruce, there's two ways we can explain this and let's do both just for the sake of discussion today. Here's your death benefit. The death benefit is the amount of your life insurance policy that's paid out to you when you die or paid out to the person that you've designated as a beneficiary. Clearly, they're not going to pay to you if you're not living. So it it's paid out when you pass away. I think of your cash value as a part of your death benefit, very much like equity in the home. You buy a house for a million dollars and you have $500,000 of equity. You sell the house, you're not going to get the million that it's worth on the market plus the equity, the $500,000 in the house. No, you're going to get the value of the house, which includes your equity. So cash value is not a separate bucket. It's a part of. It's the component of your death benefit that you currently have access to use or to borrow against that's inside of the death benefit. So if you have $500,000 cash value and a million dollar death benefit, that doesn't mean I've got 1.5 million. That means my death benefits 1 million, including the cash value. Bruce, can you also share from the net present value of future death benefit side? Oh, we've been doing this way too long because that's exactly where I was going with it. <laughs> um, so Bobby uh, from uh, Metairie, Louisiana, just put a policy on his wife for a variety of reasons. And he said that during the podcast, I explained the cash value as being the net present value of a future death benefit. And his engineer mind, it clicked immediately. Mm. So just think about this. The cash value and the death benefit are going to meet at age 121 or 120 in most contracts nowadays. So what the actuaries are doing is at age 65 or 70 or whenever you are 
whatever age you are, they're saying that cash value is going to grow from our projections, both guaranteed and from our dividend projections. It's the net present value and the growth then will meet at age 121. And so because of that, you have to know then that the cash value is part of the death benefits. And what's the only thing I'd like to say finally, then people say to me all the time because they don't think through it. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Then why would I put money in? Because all I'm doing is getting all my money back and I haven't made anything. We're not saying that. We're saying that uh, some of these contracts you can pay on for 121 years. Some of them you pay on for 10. They're called 10 pays. Some of them are 20 pays. Some of them are 30 pays. Some of them are 40 pays. Some of them are paid till age 75. You always put a considerable less premium in a contract than what you get out of the contract. Awesome. Okay. All right. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, right. hey Jim, can you can you sign up and see us and we'll look at your specifics and we'll just go from there. Um, oh, because uh, like Rachel said, like Rachel said, um, a lot of times when you're talking to an insurance agent, although I can actually say, and Jim Nether, James Nethery and I talk about this all the time, there's not bad people in our industry. They're just people that have not been as passionate about finding out the truth about how these contracts work that we may have. And I'm so, I, I actually, I can pull it out right here. I take the contracts because they change every time. And I was reading them on the plane because I want to try to make sure I understand everything that's in that particular contract. Unfortunately, a lot of insurance agents, they just hear something and they automatically think it's correct. So they don't do the, the research, but we'll, we'll help you out in your, in your particular situation. Chris, I love that you pointed that out. I, I hope that if you're part of this tribe, you know that we are continual learners and we ask and we know that you are too. That's the reason you're probably here because you're continuing to add to your knowledge and your wisdom. And so this is something that I love, Bruce, that you shared. People who are passionate enough to dig into something and really understand it. So be that person. Don't just stand from the 10,000 foot view and say, yeah, I got, I got the details. Continue to dig in. And the more you pull something in close, the more the contents become clear and you can understand it much more clearly. Hey, can we can I make a suggestion? Let, let's yeah. skip the next one because yep. that's that could be a whole podcast in itself. All right, Let, well, let's go we'll to the that. the investment in an international. Okay. That's okay. All right. Yep. Perfect. Okay. So investments. This person, this is Mark. Um, we ask a question in our email. We are always asking what's the number one question or struggle that you have about building passive building um businesses and about finance in general. And so this person is saying. Um, Mark is saying, I would like to know how to identify vetted sources of passive income to increase cash flow that are not stock market investing. He says, we aren't all looking to start businesses of our own. And he doesn't want to entertain the idea of establishing a new business venture. So he has invested in REITs to establish monthly rental income, but he doesn't want to enter directly into real estate investing. Maybe you're finding yourself in the same question. So that's why I'm sharing the details. He says, I'm aware that hunting for income producing investments on my own can lead to losses from selecting fraudulent or poorly managed enterprises. So how do I sort out this seeking for passive income? And I just want to commend you, Mark, for asking this question because you're recognizing the personal responsibility of 
running your own financial life. I mean, we all have that burden to say, well, if I put money into this investment, it may turn out and it may not. And I, I run that risk and I have to accept that risk and continue to move forward with every investment decision and always be thinking, if there is a loss, I'm going to learn from this and apply that to the next investment that I have. So Bruce, I'd love to hear your thoughts from here. First of all, Mark, um, I love your mindset, just like Rachel said. It's all about personal responsibility. And But what you're asking is, how can I limit the threat of a loss? And when you invest, there is go- that's the definition of investing, possible loss because of possible gain. You can limit you can limit the risk and in most cases then you limit the gains now we're not giving investment advice right now but there's a couple of ways to do it and i and rachel you know i i travel across social media and i have several email accounts and because i'm an investment advisor people are always touting hey look at this investment give it to your um your clients and see if they want to invest it and all i can say is that if you look towards individuals that are with broker dealers, those broker dealers actually do due diligence and hopefully the investment brokers also do due diligence. I am not a huge fan of just doing one-off syndications on this based on pro formas, unless that particular person or entity has a history. So I'm on our due diligence team at our wealth firm. And we actually look at three things mainly. We look at the experience of the sponsors. We look at how much the sponsors are putting into the deal. In other words, the partners that are sponsoring this deal. And we look at the management fees of the particular deal. So I'm so glad that he brought up REITs. Now there's non-traded REITs and traded REITs. Because of compliance, I don't want to get into the difference. You can, you can call us or, or sign up and we'll talk about the difference. But there's traded and non-traded. But because of compliance reasons, um, these REITs, I mean, we're not going to talk about it because of compliance. These REITs used to have, and I'm emphasizing used to, the sponsors would take up to 10% management fee and what they call acquisition fees and disposition fees and all these other fees. And so they were getting all their money up front. And so even if they put money into it, a lot of times they were at least getting their money back and not making anything on the, on the back end. And also when you're pulling all that cash out early, what happens is you don't have as much cash to deploy into investments, so the cash flows less. So we always look at how is it, how's the structure payout? The minimum amount of fees. Now, these people have to get paid to do some work at the beginning. There's no doubt about it. But then how's it getting paid out at the end? And I don't want to comment on that, but we can certainly talk to you about it on an individual uh, basis. And, of course, we do have some people that have been on the show and they have good track records, and we're not endorsing any one of them, mm-hmm. but they have good track records that you can look up and ask them to show you on their performance, and you can read through their PPMs. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And Bruce, we might actually have uh, time to squeeze through the rest of these questions here. Um, I'll comment real quick. Mark 
Um, thank you for commenting on YouTube live. We are going to um, bump your question to the end. Thank you for asking the question about different guarantees for whole life policies. And we're going to see if we can squeeze that one in at the end today. All right. Mm -hmm. So next question here on international infinite banking. We get this question all the time. All I mean, we've time. been reached yeah. out to from India, Brazil. I can't even name the countries, Australia, Scotland. I mean, all over the world, which I'm thankful. It's very honoring that we have people listening and wanting to learn about infinite banking from all across the world. So here's the question from Bobby that I think really summarizes everything that all of these international listeners want to know. I was watching a video of yours on whole life insurance policy loans. I wanted to know, does this apply to people in insert your country here? He says the UK. There's virtually no information available that addresses this in Britain. So first of all, Bobby, thank you for listening. Thank you for um, diving into increasing your knowledge in this area. Thank you for listening from Britain. Uh, this applies to everyone basically all across the world. So most countries, as we speak about infinite banking, we are speaking about what is true with products available in the United States, United States-based products. Now, they're are products similar that work in a very similar way in Canada. We have some partners up in Canada. I shouldn't say partners. We have friends that we know who are in the infinite banking space that do infinite banking for people who are Canadian citizens. Now, for the most part, in order to do infinite banking in the United States with, an in, with a United States policy, you need to be inside the US at the time of the policy application and delivery. Do you have to be a US citizen? No, but it helps to have assets that are hard, physical assets within the U.S. Bruce, I'm going to let you be as clear as possible on that. I don't want to um, miss. Yeah, I would say it, it doesn't help. It's required. That's right. Okay. So you you either have hard assets such as a business or you have uh, real estate. Um, stocks do not count. Okay. So because some people have said, well, I have a bunch of uh, U.S. stocks. That doesn't count. It has to be a. It has to have a physical address business in the U.S. or real estate in the U.S. And like Rachel said, you have to be in the U.S. for the application process, any paramedics for medical to check you out, and then for delivery process. So some people that could, that happens, you know, because they come into the U.S. and do business, and uh, so. But other than that, we can't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in other countries. And it's unfortunate. I wish that it was possible all around the world. Maybe at some point in the future that will change. But again, life insurance is a product that is regulated by the states and is very locality based. And so that's why you can't just have an insurer insuring people all around the world. They are um, working within the demographic of the US. Yeah, I love the next question. All right, here, this is about control options and repayment terms, or at least our answer is going to center around those. So here's a question from Serge. I think this is how you say your name, Serge. I understand that parking your money in an insurance company instead of a bank can provide higher rates of return. However, I'm still not understanding why I would then borrow against my insurance policy if the rate is higher than what I can get elsewhere. For example, if my insurance loan costs 5% and I can get 3%, or he said, if I can get a loan for 3% interest rate somewhere else, why would I use a policy loan? Either way, my money is growing uninterrupted in my cash value insurance policy. And I think the, the question was via email. I think we continued on with the question. But this is something I think is on top of so many people's minds. Well, if it's really about 
getting capital from somewhere, how do I know that just because I have a life insurance policy, I should always use that for cash, for capital when I need capital. So first, I do want to say the number one goal is to put you in a position of the maximum control and the most options so that you can make choices. You don't have to have only one option. Let's just say you had no life insurance policy. Well, then what are your options? Well, you're going to go get a bank loan. You're going to take money out of your savings account. You're going to maybe try to borrow against your savings account with some uh, some type of um, secured loan, but you don't have the ability to have your cash growing at as great of a growth rate as you do if you have a life insurance policy. So it just increases the opportunity and the options for where you can get cash from. That does not mean you should always use the life insurance loan over another funding source. But again, I think the maybe even more importantly, you want to think about the repayment terms. Because if you borrow cash from a regular loan, you're going to have a structured fixed payment. Say it's a lower interest rate. They're going to still require a monthly payment on that loan and it's going to be a fixed dollar amount. You're not going to have the op- option to change the payment structure on your own terms. With a life insurance loan, there may be a higher interest rate, but you do have flexibility on when you pay back and how you pay back. So if you have your payment repayment schedule set, as we always recommend having a plan to repay, you may not necessarily follow that exactly, but you have flexibility in how you repay. Bruce, um, I hope I didn't steal everything have, you're going to share. So No, yeah. no, because you don't know this. We actually have two clients right now who did a, what's called a collateral assignment. Mm. It's in the it's in the contract. Um, you assign your cash value and your to policy and your policy to the bank or the lending institution. Then they will lend you in both cases that we had last year at three point seven five instead of the instead of the five percent. Okay, and it was it surge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you want to do that, go do it. The cons are is the pay the, the payment schedule is controlled by the lending institution. Both of them also had floating rate uh, interest rates. So, so it was so nice this, when they got in, but it, no guarantees that it's going to stay low, right? And then it went up. And guess mm-hmm. what? Now they're trying to get the collateral assignment out of it to then pay off the loan. So now they have the loan with the life insurance company. Mm. Well, the well, the lending institution is like, well, if I release this, so now you can get the cash value to pay us off. There's a delay. We know you're going to then access the access the cash value to pay us off. So it, it's not as easy as a person might think to just say, well, if the interest rates go above the lending of the insurance company, I'll just tell them to use my cash value to pay it off. Well, you have to release the collateral assignment first. You got to get them to do that. You have to read the fine print. Once again, this takes time and energy. One of the guys that was doing it is a total entrepreneur, 10 real estate, couple of, of fitness places, and he doesn't have time to be messing with this. And he realizes now he's never going to do this again mm. to try to, to try to gain one and a quarter percent, which is not insignificant. I, I, I agree with that. It's not insignificant. But you have to understand that you lose control of what you're doing. 
Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And um, what a powerful way to learn from the experience of others who made decisions that were good and decisions that cost them something. So, all right, let's see if we can conquer this one here. So this is about buy term, invest the difference. Now, again, we could dedicate entire podcasts or even series to this, but let's go ahead and attack this question here. So this is from Ethan. He says the analogy, this is um, due to a show that we had earlier. I don't remember specifically which one, but he said the analogy of a life insurance company providing life insurance and investing your cash value versus you personally signing up for term insurance and investing your own money is interesting. It'd be cool to see a list of pros and cons as well as the math of you managing your money in something like a Roth IRA versus the insurance company managing your money. And he's saying, for example, what, what would the restrictions be for accessing that money in each setup? How does the insurance company's investment strategies compare to a conservative set it and forget it DIY portfolio? For example, a basic three fund retirement portfolio. So fabulous question. Um, Bruce, I'd love to hear your big thoughts on this. And then I have some, something that I'd like to add in. Well, this is, this is the, the, the great definition of words are important because I'm the one who said this and I didn't phrase it properly. When I said the insurance company is buying term on a whole life and then your, your premium, they're using it to invest a difference. You don't get a choice. So you can't decide, hey, I, wanna, I want that program where uh, they buy this on me and then they invest a difference. And I want to see how they're investing. I might even get a choice of where you're investing it. They're determining that. They're, their chief investment officer is determining where they're putting the money. So you don't get a choice on whole life where the insurance company is investing your money. The point I was trying to make is that a lot of people say buy term and invest a difference, and they don't realize that's what the insurance company is doing. They're buying term, and then they're taking the additional premium and investing it somewhere else, but you do not get a a chance. I am not going to comment on um, numbers, like he said, because in my my experience is just liar's poker. You know, whoever has the pencil last wins. So if I say, well, if you do it in a Roth IRA, traditionally it's got 10% growth over 40 years, and then you're going to have X amount of dollars, and then you're going to retire. Oh, by the way, uh, you were going to retire on August this year, and your S&P index fund just went down by 25%. So you don't really care that it averaged 10% for the last 40 years because suddenly you have 25% less to actually live off of. So that has not, you cannot use traditional historical rates to determine your cash flow in retirement. And I know people do that all the time because you have to tell me where the stock is going to be or the index is going to be or the mutual funds going to be at the time you want to retire. And then we make a guess. That's all we do is how much cash you can take off of it. So these are two separate entities. One is your safe cash. One is you go invest. Don't construe them as being the same thing. I'm going to say a couple things about that. I'm going to post in the chat. um, So this is the live chat. The link to an article that we did. This was, I don't remember the date, several years ago now on average rate of return versus real rate of return. And this whole concept centers around the idea that Bruce just shared 
that just because you have an average does not mean you can apply that average in the stock market to mean I will get a guaranteed growth of that exact average amount every single year going forward from now into the future. And when real rates of return are high and then low and they're up and they're down and they're up and they're down, you don't just need a average of zero to break even. You need more than that because when you lose, the amount of loss has to be compensated for in the amount of growth. And a percentage of loss is not the same as a percentage of gain. It's explained better in the article. So I just wanted to give anyone that resource if you're looking for that information. The other thing that I would say is that if you're in a position of saying, well, here I have cash, I need to figure out what to do with it. I can buy term insurance because it costs less, frankly. And well, I've got all this extra cash now to be able to invest. What am I going to invest in? And say, I'm going to invest anywhere. There's a few things that you will need to consider. Once your investment account, say say you're putting in whatever dollar amount per year, it grows to an, a certain dollar amount at the end of when you when your time frame is. You need to realize that taxes are going to happen and you're going to either have to pay taxes along the way in that account, or you're going to pay them out of your lifestyle, or you're going to pay them as capital gains tax or income tax now or in the future. There's going to be some kind of tax applied. And often if it's a taxable account, most people are not taking out of their account to pay the tax. They're paying out of their lifestyle account, they're they're spending money, and they're continuing to let that account grow. What that just means is that I'm going to have a higher and higher tax bill. And when I'm paying tax today on this investment, I'm also losing what's called opportunity cost. The, the cost, the interest that I could have earned had I put that somewhere to grow. So if I'm paying tax, if I'm paying for um, also the term policy premium, I have opportunity costs on those costs that I need to factor into whatever my ending dollar amount is. That's not all mine to keep. I need to think about the costs along the way. If I'm putting my money into a life insurance account, even if it ends up as a lesser ending balance than my investment account over here, I don't have to factor in those costs because there was no separate term insurance cost that I needed to factor in because it all went to a policy premium that is going to be long lasting. And I don't have to think about tax because the tax advantages are tremendous in terms that I don't have to pay tax on this cash that I've put in. I've paid tax before I put the money in, in life insurance, and I'm not going to have to pay tax again if I use the policy properly. So that opens a whole can of worms about tax that we could address. Again, that's going to be in another show. Yeah, and all you math people that want to weed through, go through the weeds on this, go to Dr. Wade Fowl again, his white paper. He did all the mathematical calculations, and he's not a life insurance guy. He's a money manager guy. He's a registered investment advisor, and he sees the mathematical reason why this is this is true. So I would encourage you to read his white paper. I'm just checking if he. We might not have linked to his white paper in the article that I linked onto the show. So I might have to double check that link. Um, Bruce, we had one really cool comment, but I think we're going to save that for a different show. And I am going to go over to um, Mark here who asks, are there different guarantees for whole life policies referring to different insurance companies? Bruce, you want to take that one? Yeah, the uh, the new uh, 7702 laws that went in effect at the end of the uh, Trump administration um, forced 
the insurance companies to make uh, different guarantees amount. Now, what what is interesting in this, and I'm not going to tout myself as an expert on this. So everybody listen, I just said that. I'm not an expert on this yet because this this just came out at the beginning of this year. So what happens here is they've lowered their guarantees. Remember, these are gross and interest guarantees, gross. They used to be 4% on just about every policy, but then they had the fees and the cost of insurance that would come out. That's net, okay? Now they've lowered it anywhere between 2 to 2.75%. Some are two and a quarter, some are two and a half, some are 275. And even those don't make a difference. And I, once again, I know people are screaming because everybody says fees always make a difference. So interest rates always have to make a difference. No, because you do not have the same types of fees and cost of insurance with every company. So what you really should look at is the guaranteed cash value, in my opinion. And even there, I would say, if you're only focusing on the guaranteed cash value and not on the overall growth, then you really don't believe in the insurance company's ability to make money for you in their dividends, which every company we've used has made money for their policyholders for 117 to 175 years, depending on which company. So yes, guarantees are important, but guess what? Here's the kicker on this. The lower guarantees put less pressure on the investment. When you put less pressure on the investments, they actually can get higher returns and then the dividend isn't affected. So now you get less guarantees, but the same amount of dividends or greater amount of dividends. So the overall result could actually be positive from what these uh, from what these chief investment officers tell me from these insurance companies. You know, I think um, I'm glad you spoke to that specifically because I was just thinking of the big picture guarantees for somebody who is maybe not asking as technical of a question and they're thinking about guarantees in general, you have guaranteed premium for a whole life insurance policy, meaning your Guaranteed, premium will never go guarantee. up. You mm-hmm. will have a guaranteed death benefit, meaning the dollar amount listed for the death benefit is never going to be less than that. It's going to continue to grow if your, po- proper, if your policy is properly constructed. And then also you have a guaranteed cash value amount. This is what Bruce was speaking to, the guaranteed cash value based on the interest growth with no dividends factored in of which all the companies that we work with have paid dividends year in and year out, even during the hardest of economic times. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thank you. All right. So um, two more things. So Spaceman 200, he's asking to me, Rachel, what's your take on insurance policies with digital assets for higher than dollar returns in the long term? I have no idea. So Bruce, do you have anything you want to say about that? I have no idea either. Uh, I own some digital assets. They're not performing the way I thought they would perform. I understand we're in a volatile time, just like any new currency um, in its early infancies is going to be volatile. Um, I'm just going to go back to what Nelson, I I always turn to Nelson. Nelson says, if you're going to, if you're going to save, save, if you're going to invest, invest, but do not mix the two. And I think if you're paying out in digital or, or paying with digital assets, that's an investment that you're trying to use for your savings. I was, I, I've actually had conversations with some of our 
clients who have bought large amounts of digital assets and have lost a lot of money in these digital assets. That's not savings. Because, oh, um, absolutely not savings. No, and so I would presume, the uh, presumption, but that an insurance company wouldn't put a majority of their assets into digital currency anyway. They would, if they're using that at all, I'm sure it would be a very small percentage of their portfolio. What's where we try to stay? We try to stay insurance company agnostic here on this program, but there is one insurance company that bought two hundred million dollars of Bitcoin, and that sounds like a lot, but I'm doing the math right now. They have five point six billion dollars of assets. So if you do the math on that, it was really only like three tenths of all their assets were in digital currency. So. It really three tenths or three tenths of a percent. Three tenths of a percent. Okay. So, so that's we low. think about it. Yeah, we think about it. Oh, two hundred million dollars. That's a lot of money. And and to the average American, obviously, that's a huge amount of money. But when you have five point six billion dollars, I believe I did the math in my head and on the uh, well. But you can you can check me out. It's a very small percentage. All right. So two last things. This has been the longest show of all time. Um, this person is C. They just listed their name as C. And I'm just going to read a part of what they wrote. Um, they're a Wall Street professional that got involved with the whole life with whole life when uh, in 2004. So this information was coming from an industry guy who understands all of the inner workings. He said he was a bond salesman. CMBS analyst, equity analyst, and now equity portfolio manager. And he's still saying to some of his friends, whole life should be a huge part of any high net worth plan. All right. So I'm just going to leave it there. The comment was longer, but that was very beneficial. So here's the thing that I mentioned at the beginning. If you have listened to this whole hour and 30 minutes, hour and 29 minutes, this is um, pretty epic for us and also for you who's listening. Um, we mentioned at the beginning that I had a special announcement for you. If you have questions and you are personally considering infinite banking for yourself and you have questions at this time, I'd like to invite you to be part of a live show with us. What we would do is I need you to send me an email at hello at themoneyadvantage.com and you need to put in your question that you would like to address on the show. That would be allowing you to be considered for the conversation, not necessarily everyone who asks will be able to get into the show just because we will we will have limits but if you're interested in finding out more because you are personally considering infinite banking and that's a key as well not just if you have general questions in life or or you want to debate that we're not looking for a debate on the show but if you legitimately have questions because you're personally considering it we'd love to answer your questions and have a dialogue with you live on the show we're going to bring on several people all at once and be able to do a show that's a Q&A session, but in a live format. So please send me an email at hello at themoneyadvantage.com if you'd like to be part of that. And I also want to just thank everyone for sharing your questions and your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your input and your contribution to making this show and our work better. And if you are looking for personal guidance, you can always hop on over to themoneyadvantage.com. You can get on our advisor calendar and really be able to explore your personal life situation and figure out what exactly are the right next steps for you in your own personal life. You can do that again at themoneyadvantage.com. I invite you to do that, whether you currently have an infinite banking policy or you're just looking to get started. 
Thank you so much for being with us today. Please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few. And I'll add in, Nelson Nash was definitely very successful. That's why we keep talking about him. And um, don't follow the not crowd. The crowd. I can't, yeah. <laughs> build a life and business you love. Follow the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.